It's a time for transformation. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that will come that will earn that honour in the future. We acknowledge that we will never have climate justice until we have justice for First Nations people in this country. We also acknowledge and hope that we realise the value in channeling the ancient wisdom that they acquired from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before they were invaded. Responsibility. Who's taking responsibility here? Canada is burning. Italy flooding. Sudan has been drowning too for a while. India is overheating. Spain and South France drying out. But no reactions from our politicians. No one, not one of our leaders is taking responsibility for what we're seeing here. This is the new word in sustainability maybe. I'm even thinking maybe we should switch sustainability out with talking about responsibility instead. You're listening to the Responsible Hour, a program for responsible people. Those of us who live responsibly, we shop responsibly, we drive responsibly, of course. That's the word we need to talk about, responsibility. And in particular, this week in Geelong, where people will be gathering, I hope, tomorrow at the Geelong Library at five o'clock to listen to a corporate lawyer who's got this brilliant idea to make companies behave like good responsible citizens. We don't ask them nicely if they would please do a little better with their pollution. No, we write it in the corporate law. We make it mandatory for them. Of course they have to be responsible. The code is a new idea to fight climate change and eliminate other serious corporate abuses of the public interest. Most environmental activists are fighting a problem with a common source. That source isn't specific factories or power generating stations, vehicle models, or even the greenhouse gases themselves. It's a defect in the corporate law, which keeps corporate directors from making the emissions stop. This defect wasn't always there, and it doesn't have to be there in the future. The code will eliminate the flaw and impose on company directors a duty to protect the environment when their company is discovered to be causing it severe harm. All environmental organizations, political organizations, and other groups concerned about climate change should work together to support its adoption. BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, Total, Chevron, and 16 other large fossil fuel companies out there are responsible for $8.1 trillion in drought wildfires, sea level rise, melting glaciers, and all the other climate catastrophes that are expected to hit us between 2025 and 2050. That's according to a new analysis published by the journal One Earth. This is the first time that researchers have quantified 
the economic burden that is caused by these individual companies that have extracted and, and continue to extract billions of dollars of profit and wealth from this planet-heating fossil fuel. They pay almost nothing in royalties for the resources they're digging up. They pay nothing or very little in tax for all the activities they have here in Australia. They pay nothing for the environmental harm. And the, the problem is that the law is actually allowing them to do this. So we have a moment, a, a special opportunity here in Geelong tomorrow at 5 o'clock at Geelong Library to show to show that we're paying attention and to show that we are responsible citizens who want companies to be responsible just as well and who can demand from our politicians that they change the corporate law to make them into responsible citizens just like us. But let's, as always, begin the hour with uh, the global perspective on everything. Uh, what do you have for us today, Colin Market, OAM? What do you have for us in the global news basket this week? Yeah, well, thank you, Mick. Our roundup this week begins, of course, with last week's bombshell from the UN's World Meteorological Organization. The WMO report predicted that the combination of heat-trapping greenhouse gases and an El Nino weather pattern is almost certain to push global temperatures to record levels inside the next five years. The report said that the chance of temporarily exceeding 1.5 degrees had risen steadily since 2015, when it was close to zero. Between 17 and 2021, there was a 10% chance. Now it's 70%. The agency's Secretary General, Professor Petteri Talas, said a warming El Nino is expected to develop in the coming months, and this will combine with human-induced climate change to push global temperatures into uncharted territory. This will have far-reaching repercussions for health, food, security, water management, and the environment. Which means, of course, that our politicians will ignore this and put more funding into carbon capture technology as recommended by their fossil fuel lobbyists. Now to Indonesia, where Joko Widogo's government has a plan to completely rebuild the nation's capital, Jakarta, but 1,300 kilometers from its current site. The new city is to be called Nusantara, and President Widodo is looking to build a new city from scratch. It's going to be a city of the future, not designed around motor cars. It will be green and walkable capital city and built from the ground up. Nusatara won't just be any planned city, he said, but a green metropolis run on renewable energy where there are no choking traffic jams and people can stroll and bike along verdant pathways. The new capital, which is known in Indonesia by its abbreviation IKM, is planned to adapt to a warming planet. We want to build a new Indonesia, Mr. Jakodo said. We want a new work ethic, new mindset, new green economy. This is another area where I'll be keeping an eye on this new city's progress for you. 
to Europe, where the spring has brought intense fires in Spain and Portugal and flooding rains to northern Italy and its surrounds. Days of rainstorms have unleashed what's known as apocalyptic floods and landslides in northern Italy, Croatia, Bosnia and Slovenia. The Italian Civil Protective Minister, Nello Masarecci, called for a new nationwide hydraulic engineering plan to adapt to the impact of increasing floods and landslides due to climate change. He said that drought prior to the floods made the crisis worse due to the fact that the baked soil just ran the water off, didn't absorb it. When soil remains dry for a long time, instead of increasing its absorption capacity, it ends up cementing and allowing rainfall to continue to flowing over the surface and causing absolutely unimaginable damage, he said. But there was a piece of good news that came out of this, though. The weekend's rains also forced the local Formula One Grand Prix to cancel, not because of its damage to the environment, nor its track, which was completely flooded. It was because the region's emergency crews were already stretched too thin to allow them to get uh, to attend a big venue like that. And finally, a new report from the US, which says that Americans don't eat enough beans, even though beans solve a lot of world problems being addressed by much more complicated and expensive solutions. And here's a surprise. The report wasn't sponsored by Heinz. It was jointly funded by the UN's food and environment bodies. It turns out that there's a simple way to provide plenty of protein that doesn't require animals or plant-based startups, and that's beans. Beans are high in protein, efficient to grow, and can even improve soil health. They cost less than conventional or new plant-based meats, and they're increasingly getting attention among foodies. There's a global campaign in America to double bean consumption by 2028, with the opening statement saying, the answer to the questions of how we can get inexpensive protein without sacrificing animals or the planet is simple. Beans is how. Beans are suddenly environmental and healthy. And who would have thought that cool beans would have ended my roundup for the week, but they did. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. You seek the Holy Grail. That is our quest. Our quest is to find the Holy Grail. Yeah. Yes, it uh, is. It is. Yeah. 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 And so we're, we're, we're looking for it. Yes, we yeah, are. Yeah, we, are. Yeah. we have been some time. Ages. As you will probably know if you've been listening to the Sustainable Hour, we are constantly on the lookout for new ideas, especially new ideas to solve the climate crisis. Today, in our ongoing quest to find the climate grail, we think we are onto something. We may have found something, spotted something in the Tambourine Mountain in Queensland. What is your quest? I seek the grail.
My name's Scott Allison. I uh, represent Dual Chamber. Dual Chamber is a new idea for energy storage. It's like a battery for storage, but it's also like a motor. But how it works uh, essentially is that it's a mechanical energy storage device and uh, it stores energy by, uh, if you direct mechanical energy into the device, uh, that force coming into the device opens and creates through some transformable geometry, a, uh, a vacuum space against the atmospheric pressure. So at a census, it makes a vacuum. So it's a, uh, it's a set of transformable geometry that is uh, sealed from the outside that starts with little or no uh, oxygen or air in it. And uh, as it increases, it remains, it doesn't allow anything to enter and it pushes against atmospheric pressure so that would be the primary chamber against the open atmosphere. So it could work like that and um, in one sense. Now, if you then uh, put it inside a secondary chamber, like a standard air compressing tank, and had it inside that, well, then you can uh, manipulate the artificial atmosphere to whatever level you want. Uh, and you get a direct relationship between that. So if you had that at two atmospheres, you would double the energy storage capacity. Well, in fact, you get a bit more than doubling because what happens is to start with, because the uh, as as the inner vacuum chamber opens up the primary chamber uh, inside the tank, then the remaining air pressure inside that tank has less space, so that increases in pressure. So the increase in pressure, so it uh, the, the more the chamber expands, the greater the uh, pressure on the outside trying to force it closed, and it's the uh, it's the pressure differential between the two. Uh, that creates the power. So you use a lot of mechanical energy going into it um, and then it will lock. You could have a device, you could use it immediately uh, or it could lock and, um, and then be used at a later time or, in fact, for a different purpose. So, you know, one particular uh, way you could use it might be on regenerative braking. So if you're rolling down a hill, uh, you attach it to your drive shaft in some manner that... Uh, that instead of applying brakes, forces the uh, vacuum apart and, uh, and, and uh, stores it. And then when you get to the bottom of the hill heading up, you release the energy so you get some thrust coming out of it. So you get a direct mechanical storage in and you could store it and use it later. You can, of course, pre-charge it um, so that you, had a, you don't have to use only what you collect. You could pre-charge it for the purpose that you have. It hasn't really got a particular... Um, size or application uh, its size could be the dependent on what you want it for uh, so you know the one that you would put for a car it would be different for the one that you would build for a home battery solution for yourself you know so you could actually make it quite small or you could make it quite large when you get into the large size of it it has some uh, challenges as far as uh, pressure vessels are concerned because it's got to uh, hold a large amount of pressure one of the advantages it has is that it is uh, it is modular, so you can connect a variety of them and uh, have smaller units that in total equal the same as a one large unit and overcome some of those situations. Um, some of the other aspects of it uh, are that it's, uh, of course, it's a mechanical energy, so it doesn't directly connect to an electrical source. Uh, and you could leave it inside that mechanical realm. In, in the example I gave of a car, it, it operates within that way. But... You know, if you wanted to use it in both the electrical 
or the uh, mechanical realm, um, then you could, instead of putting mechanical energy in to separate and uh, make the vacuum chamber inside, you could put an electrical motor to it that you plug in. So you could use solar to drive an electrical motor to force it apart. And then when you wanted to use it, you could use that uh, electrical motor in reverse as a generator and use it to uh, release the mechanical energy to produce electricity for use. So you've sort of got options about uh, the sort of energy you've got. You've got a couple of ways to put it in. You've got a couple of ways to get it out, um, to convert it to electricity or to use it in a mechanical sense. Uh, the other way you could use energy from the device is that you could have a, um, you could have a connection between the, uh, the inner primary chamber and the outer atmosphere. And if you would open the uh, connection, you would have a very powerful vacuum. So you could use it for a purpose like that. You could also use it with a high pressure tank for, um, for giving you uh, high pressure air for some form of work to do. You know, it's got a few other applications as well. We feel uh, one might be suspension so that, um, so that you could gear it to hold weight. It's actually quite good at that. To, uh, uh, so you could have the, uh, the inner primary chamber half, let's say half uh, at its size and uh, you design something. So if you had a, uh, perhaps a vehicle on top of it that was, uh, let's say, five tonne in weight, you would position uh, the dual chamber to uh, get its, at its halfway position. So then you would have some dampening. Um, and you, so you could use it for suspension as well. Uh, and you could actually, you know, we're, my, my small business has been thinking about it for a couple of years and we've actually got, you know, probably up to 100 applications we think we could use it for now. So it's sort of like a, so we sort of think of it's like a, uh, it's like a battery and a motor together uh, in a sense. And if you think about it like that, you could use it in a car to replace a, uh, a starter motor and the battery in one by having a dual chamber there for that purpose. And, uh, and we think there's a lot of other applications. You know, as I say, I've got a hundred, so I don't want to tell you all of them, but just to tell you a couple, you could use it. It's good with feel for situations that uh, small use energies. I feel that you could use it uh, to replace batteries for small things like remote controls on air conditioners. Uh, where you put a small winding mechanism um, you could put on it to get, because an air conditioner remote you, uh, you only uh, use occasionally. Uh, so instead of putting batteries into it that uh, either need recharging or replacing, you just have a battery source, which is a dual chamber, which is a replenishable source, not being a battery, that you can just put a bit of mechanical energy into it any time you needed it. Um, and uh, so in a small level, you could go to that. If you had a at a larger level, you could, um, you know, you could have it if you had a large electrical, uh, you had a large motor that was required to perform a heavy-duty task. That task was perhaps only sp uh, spasmodically. Then you could put a small electrical motor to trickle charge a dual chamber to give you the oomph when you needed it to, for the large task. So. so how much of this is reality and how much is still on the paper as, you know, theory? The, uh, unfortunately, uh, most of it is still theory. The company's been going for a couple of years. We've had uh, a few staff members working with us. We've put a, uh, an Australian pattern in. We've put an uh, international PCT pattern on it. Um, and uh, we've built some prototypes and tested our, uh, our numbers. Um, so we're, we're confident that we know what we're talking about. 
but we haven't built anything with it yet. Uh, and that's where we're at now. We're looking to try and partner with some people to build and to further develop the product uh, and the possibilities of the product. So the level and the, you know, the, the resources that we have, we've kind of reached those now. Um, and, um, you know, the traditional means for advancing the company from here would be to seek a grant, to seek investments, all of those sorts of things. But we're not really motivated to do that. Our motivation is to license our product uh, and to enter into a licensing agreement where we develop product further and we take partners uh, who are capable of actually looking at it on an industry-by-industry industry basis. And I think that that process will give the, uh, give the idea a greater chance of success. So if I were doing it, I'd have only be able to have the resources to focus on a singular task. In this way, I might be able to uh, contract uh, with places all around the world. So what would you say to someone, you know, when you are to explain why is this actually such a good idea? Why is it a good idea? Uh, it's a flexible idea that works in a number of different ways. Uh, so for the grid, it could be an alternative to pumped hydro, and it's got the advantages there that you don't need the topography of positioning in it. Uh, so you could store it anywhere along the grid as well. You don't have to store it at the dam site. However, if it's an alternative to pump hydro, it requires a generator to turn uh, into electricity. If there's presumably one at the dam site, then that's a logical place. But you could, in theory, have it anywhere along the grid. It's also scalable, so it can ramp up and it can uh, come down. It's transportable as well, so you don't have to uh, leave it where it is. It could work as a hybrid partner for wind turbines. Um, not that we're experts on wind turbines, but the small amount of uh, research we've done on it leads us to believe that wind turbines uh, only operate in their peak wind periods. So there's some periods where it's too low and some periods where it's too high. So we feel the dual chamber, because dual chamber is one of its you know primary characteristics that's really advantageous, is its ability to either be quickly charged or quickly released. So um, in that situation, you know, a wind turbine, uh, you know, that was running too fast could actually quickly power it. And uh, or if you wanted electricity for the grid on peak demands, you could have a reserve uh, of energy stored that could be quickly released. But if you, you know, if you think about it a little bit further than that and you say that uh, if you wanted to use it and keep it in the mechanical realm, there's a large difference between you know, the understanding or the, or the power or the, um, let, me, let me just give you an example. So if you had a, a, something that started, let's say, the size of a tennis ball uh, and it was a dual chamber and it, ex, uh, it expanded, let's say, 100% of its size. Um, now, uh, if you converted how much energy that stored in an electrical sense, you only come up with around uh, nine uh, kilojoules which is a pretty ordinary amount. Uh, we're not talking about a large size here. We're talking about a tennis ball size, but it's a fairly small amount uh, of energy. But And in equivalent, that's probably half of a uh, standard phone battery storage. But if you, kept, if you left it in the mechanical sense, it's got enough potential energy to hold 460 kilos at two metres high. So if you were using it for your person in, in a manner, uh, you know, to, to replicate that with people, you've probably got about, you know, the power of eight men to lift that and hold that two metres high. From a suspension viewpoint, it, you know, it could hold 100 millimetres off the ground, it could hold nine tonne. 
of weight. So in, in, in a pure mechanical sense, it's actually a lot. In an electrical sense, it's not that much. Um, when you get to higher, uh, you know, when you get to higher units than a tennis ball, it, you know, you can increase that amount. But directly, it doesn't directly compare um, favourably uh, with batteries as far as the size of a battery storage versus the size of an, a dual chamber storage for the same. Uh, however, you know, dual chamber's got a long way to go to compete uh, with energy density for batteries, you know, which so far have had over 100 years. Uh, our device is right at the start. So we feel that give us a bit of time and we'll catch up. Yeah, you know, there were electric cars driving around in 1912 and they were solar powered in 1950s. And imagine if somebody at that time had said, oh, this is great, let's invest in that. And imagine all car dealers in the world, if they had jumped on it at the time where we would be today. Mm, that's right. Uh, so uh, it's about time to rethink, you know, and, and hopefully now investors are more interested. What is your feeling at the moment? Looking at the situation, there's, a, there's such a need for innovation. And uh, when you go out and talk with people, what is what is the response you get? Well, everybody's, uh, you know, uh, everybody's screaming to try and find new ideas. That's all. And, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, if you do a uh, an internet search and you look at what are the most, uh, uh, what are the most promising ideas around, not that that's probably entirely up to date, but, uh, um, you know, third down the list is compressed air. Uh, and uh, and I think the next one is pumped hydro. And uh, uh, now dual chamber doesn't really fit into any of those existing characters. It's sort of like a compressed air system. It's got advantages over being a compressed air system, which uh, uh, is that, of course, it can be any size, a dual chamber. It doesn't have to be location specific as well. What's the journey behind it? Uh, what led you to go in this direction? Where are you coming from yourself? Well, I, I uh, ran a transport business for 30 years, but for the last, probably the last five or 10 years of my transport business, I always wanted to to make some sort of a contribution and I wanted to chase a dream that I'd had for a number of years uh, when I uh, it seemed reasonable to me that uh, if you looked at the power of suction from a, from a vacuum and uh, if you look just at how much uh, weight... Uh, you know, perhaps suction cups can hold if they're if they're holding glass in place. Uh, and I imagine that there's only a thin there's only a thin uh, amount of vacuum. There's only a small vacuum inside that space, but it seems to have incredible power. Um, and it seemed obvious to me that 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 was possible. So I sort of had this idea for a while, just looking at the, uh, the ability of suction. And from there, it sort of just grew and grew. Uh, but I've got a lot of other ideas and a lot of other things. So my last number of years at uh, Transport, my heart was no longer in it. I really wanted to work on, uh, you know, to things that uh, gave me, that I could do, that that gave me in benefit, that also that I can try and produce something or invent something that actually is going to be good for everybody. Um, and that's what I hope I've achieved with uh, Dual Chamber. I have seen the grail. No here. I have seen it! I have seen it! But there is one small problem. What's the biggest dream that, what's the biggest goal 
in a way. You know, if you really dare to think that investors were just jumping at you with billions of dollars, where would this take the world? Fuel chamber is a new idea for energy storage. It's like a battery for storage, but it's also like a motor. And its purposes uh, are quite multi-purposed. I've come up with about 100 or so myself. I feel that once people really understand this concept and the ability of what it can actually do, uh, it'll, it'll expand that to a lot more than I've ever thought of. What do you see its main application as being, Scott? Al, from what you know and your yeah and and your knowledge of the of its uh, possibilities, what do you see is is the main the main practical use of it? From here, if we uh, if we don't get anybody to uh, to invest to work on it, we're not going to give up. We're going to stay at it, and we're going to uh, you know make benchtop models that can actually uh, demonstrate how we can do things in a little bit of an unusual way to get interest. If I had interest, the, uh, the, first, uh, the first advantages I, uh, I feel would be uh, home storage for electricity. I think that uh, if you had something that was the size of half a 20-foot uh, uh, container, so if you had something about the size of a 10-foot container, let's just say it's a standard garden shed size, that short, sort of size could hold uh, between 8 and 10 uh, kilowatt hours, which is about the average home usage. So, uh, so something that size to me that's, uh, uh, you know, that's made of uh, rubber and metal um, and uh, can connect to solar and store the energy for a household, that would be the number one uh, application I feel moving forward. Uh, one thing I believe is that you could end up with some uh, personal energy supply um, that's, uh, that's something that people use that provides them with um, provides them with mobility. Um, I think that you could, uh, you know, use it to uh, elevate a person. I think you could ha you could have something that's some sort of an uh, exoskeleton that uh, perhaps was uh, precharged and powered that could actually carry that individual. So I think that uh, you could power an individual with a device that means that that device does the work for the individual um, and allows them to move faster. Uh, go further, uh, lift things that they would never have been able to do, uh, be a lot, uh, a, a lot better in that sense. So I think that that's a, a real possibility with this device being a strong mechanical device that can be quite small. I think another device, uh, another application for it, and, and uh, you know, again, I'm just just uh, hypothetically saying that uh, what could be possible is that I would, you know, I would like to have some sort of some sort of an area where cities, in fact, encourage uh, the population to exercise, um, you know, perhaps going, uh, um, if you have a city like Sydney, let's say that uh, I think it's 4 million people, if you encourage a large percentage of those people who regularly exercise now to exercise in an environment where they, uh, they go to a height and, uh, and as they lower the height, um, you know, that you capture that energy through a dual chamber uh, for use later. Uh, it might, it's not in the electrical sense going to produce a lot of electricity, but what it is going to do, if you've got a lot of people, then you've got a lot of mass, and a lot of mass could produce a lot of energy. So it will produce some energy. Um, 
it's energy that uh, that people currently spend anyway exercising, so they're not really doing anything further. Um, and it allows people then to make some sort of a contribution to the situation. A lot of people, I think, feel frustrated because they want to make some contribution towards uh, advancing the world. They want to collect and uh, recycle plastic bottles and, and as a small items don't really seem very much, but as a whole, they do. And it's similar with this idea. Uh, people then feel good about it and they encourage people to exercise on it and whatever it produces is, uh, is something that we don't have to uh, produce in other ways. Um, I think also that you could have a, um, you know, I think one of the other benefits for this device is uh, its, its transportability and its mobility so if you have natural emergencies and things where you need to put power into uh, situations, I think it's perfect for those. So you can replace uh, generators. And the big advantage there being that it takes less rare mineral mining and it's less complicated in a way. Or how, how do, What is the big advantage? Well, there's some advantages there. Uh, some of the other advantages are that uh, uh, we feel that the cost is going to be advantage. Although we, uh, you know, I can't directly say to you uh, what the advantage is going to be, but uh, in the long run, the cost will be an advantage. So there'll be a cost advantage and an environmental uh, advantage of doing it. Uh, we feel the product also is going to have uh, the ability to have repairable parts. So it's not going to be something that necessarily uh, becomes obsolete. It'll be something with a long, uh, a lot of life cycles. So if it's cheaper, better for the environment and uh, longer, those sort of advantages sound good to me. So uh, is there a risk of it exploding or something? Well, there's, a, uh, there's given uh, guidelines now already for pressure vessels. And so anything produced would be in line with those guidelines. So it has the same risk as any sort of a gas bottle that you hold. Um, mm -hmm. So it has minimal risk as well. Uh, well understood now and would be included in any development. Mm. And Scott, you were, were you saying that it would last, has the potential to outlast what's currently being used uh, for the same storage uh, capacity? Well, if you talk about the same storage, I, I'm only saying that a gun uh, shed size would hold around about 8 to 10 kilowatt hours, the average household. You know, if you wanted a battery to do the same, you might be down to a, a fourth of the size um, of that. So it's quite an advantage size-wise. Um, but again, the uh, the cost-wise, we feel the advantage will uh, swing to dual chamber and uh, and the ability to last longer than a battery and also uh, not have any issues about disposing of the product at the end of its uh, life cycle yeah. is also an advantage. But also it's, it'll be something that... Uh, is a repairable system and can be uh, and can be uh, maintained. Yeah, well, there's a lot of advantages in, in that. Cheaper, and it lasts longer, so it makes it doubly cheaper. Yeah, but it's like anything that's at the beginning of its journey. So you know, its cost, Jules Chambers' cost, will come down significantly with development. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, you know, we've got some systems now for uh, making our vacuum at the centre our transformable geometry. We feel there's lots of improvement to be made on that. Um, so, so they're sort of the main advantages, but we think just being a hybrid partner for lots of other, like there's air compression cars now that run, away, run around and uh, those cars, you know, are charged by putting air in and they spend their energy driving uh, 
driving the motor by releasing the air. So if they uh, that sort of a system incorporated a dual chamber as well and caught that, uh, then as what happens now when that uh, when that tank starts losing its energy, you know, then it um, well, there's a couple of things I guess. One is when it loses its energy, it it, it slowly um, adjusts for the gearing so that it keeps the same sort of amount. Whereas uh, having a uh, dual chamber inside, you could in fact maintain pressure. Uh, inside that tank for a longer so you could in fact maintain your pressure so you have high pressure all of the time and then suddenly you're out of pressure instead of having a continually dropping pressure uh, is one and you could also have the regenerative braking be used to get give you some of the energy for it and of course in that scenario you know it, it doesn't get all of its energy by receiving air and descent and and dis and expelling air it gets internal pressure from a dual chamber, giving it more uh, more oomph. So that sort of a partner might not replace that, but it might be a good partner. It could also be a partner we feel for uh, for uh, electric cars because it'll be lighter than a battery. Uh, it depends again upon the application. If the goal of the car is to make the uh, battery last, uh, so that uh, you know it's it's the same battery for somebody that's in the city, or it's the same battery for somebody that runs between country towns but if there was a different vehicle for the city it was a city vehicle for battery cars then a dual chamber would be a good tool for that because um you know it's got a lot of raw power a dual chamber you could release the uh, energy promptly and use it to propel a car to get it up to its uh, cruising speed and use it for in that manner and save battery power and then there's less battery power so it's a lighter vehicle as well as, as having more oomph uh, that then uses the battery in a different way. But, it, uh, yeah, so it's it got so, a lot of opportunities. It sounds like something that uh, some car drivers would love, what you talk about there, some more oomph. Oh, exactly, yeah. Well, you know, it, uh, you feel you certainly get a lot of oomph from it. Yeah, it depends uh, how quickly you release the energy. Mm. Great, Scott. Um, rounding off, I would like you to uh, give us a, a one-minute explanation of this for a way that your son or grandson would understand. All right. Well, I, I feel that uh, the best way to explain dual chamber would be to say that uh, there's an effect of gravity on the Earth and it affects everything on the Earth, uh, including the air that's... Uh, surrounding us and uh, all of that air is currently under pressure all being driven towards uh, the earth and uh, you can't see it but it's there if you made a device that lent against that atmospheric pressure that you can't see uh, then you can lean against a weight and by forcing that space open you can then lock that space and then use it for another purpose So it's purely an energy storage device. It doesn't make energy. It only stores whatever gets put into it. And uh, it's it's got a different few different ways that you can use it. But nobody that we know of, and that's, I think, why we were able to get our patents on, have come up with a way that you could, uh, you could actually make a vacuum and hold that space and then use it for some other purpose. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think there's a direct comparison that I can think of Um, and that's one of the challenges that, you know, the main challenge we have as a business is getting people to understand the product 
and then getting people to uh, to visualise what the uh, uh, what the opportunities for using that product are. Hmm. I, I get that because I also find it a bit difficult to understand. It's like, for instance, if if I blew up a balloon and then I let the air go out, then I can see the action is there. And I, I understand that. We understand that because, you know, since childhood, we've seen balloons and we know how they work. But what you talk about is sort of doing the opposite. You create a space where there's no air inside and therefore the atmosphere really wants to go there. Exactly. So if you uh, if you change that analogy and said you had your space, but instead of in, in an open uh, atmospheric pressure, if it was under a body of water, well, then you could visualize that the body of water wants to crush that space. So if you made a space underwater, um, yeah, so that's kind of a little bit the same um, and uh, a bit easier to imagine, I guess. But that's one of the things I would say to my, you know, my grandchildren when I'm trying to explain the idea to them is that air is, can't be seen, but, of course, you you know it's there and there's a lot of pressure. It's, you know, uh, it's one centimetre uh, at sea level. It's supposed to be one centimetre One square centimeter represents one kilo of pressure, and if you then put an artificial atmosphere with a secondary chamber that intensifies the atmosphere, you can really multiply the storing ability of that device. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a bit unlike. I can't point to anything else and say it's sort of like this item because um, it's not. Uh, but the the fact that it is actually a motor and a battery uh, and a motor together really opens up the possibilities. Or a battery, you have to, you know, hook up to some other motor to do a function. Um, this one, you could couple directly to the uh, stored dual chamber and get a rotational output from it. So you could have a backpack on that was charged that had a rotational uh, point to it that you used as a drill or as a uh, some other function, as a as a as a yeah as a, as a lot of different things. The patent attorney uh, that we uh, chose, when we put it with him, he said to me, oh, that's a really simple idea. Surprised nobody's doing that. And uh, so uh, so some people think it's simple and some people just yeah. can't understand it. Yeah. Scott, was there any one time or one event where you realised the potential of this or is it is it sort of been a process for you where... Well, it's been a it's been a process. The the, the number one thing I feel was uh, you know pr prior to starting the work, which really began seriously a couple of years ago. Prior to that, I'd really only imagined it at atmospheric pressure. So I I, I, I pictured my my suction caps that somebody can walk up a building in and thinking, wow, they they've got a lot of grip, they're quite powerful. I hadn't really thought about the ability to uh, mag you know increase or multiply. Uh, by a secondary chamber, and uh, I learned that by working uh, with a couple of the um, the uh, engineers that we've got working with us, and it became uh, uh, that became a game changer because up till then, when you measured the amount of energy you got from storing it in a pure electrical sense, it was it's fairly dismal. It's not a lot of energy. Uh, as I say, it actually it has a lot of a lot of mechanical applications, but they're a little bit futuristic. Uh, the actual electrical uh, ability doesn't hold a lot. Once you whack a secondary chamber to it and you multiply it, then you start to get something that has a bit of bite and a bit of meaning. That's where the uh, that's where it really came into it. Uh, yes, I can help you find the Holy Grail. Oh, 
Today in the Sustainable Hour, we have Philip Gardner. Philip is a sheep and grain farmer from Mora in Western Australia. He's uh, organised a petition through Farmers for Climate Action, which is covering the fossil fuel companies buying up productive agricultural land to enable them to get carbon offset credits. So, Phil, tell us why you are doing this petition and where they can find it. Well, the reason I did the petition, Rossi, is because the gas companies who have got their own methane emissions are buying land at relatively cheap prices to have to create offsets for their emissions at a cheap price. Now, buying up land is fine in theory, excepting that farmers are going to need to have their own land and they're going to have emissions, which they're going to have to try and offset themselves. Now, when the gas companies buy it, they've got so, so big emissions. These are just scope one emissions. These are emissions at the well site and along their production line which they need to deal with without intruding on offsets, which in my view should be kept for the farmers when they need them. And they will be needing them, that's for sure. Unfortunately, 
we as farmers are a bit behind the, the sophisticated gas companies and or and energy companies who are buying this land. But we're going to need that land for our own offsets. And I don't like seeing it going to other sectors to for them to contain their emissions. Well, I think that, that there needs to be a change further back up, up the political pole because offset should be the last resource there should be action taken right at the source being the uh, mine field or the gas field or whatever it is instead of relying on this lazy way i'll call it lazy way of of just getting saying oh well everything's all right so in their shareholders report they can say oh yeah we've solved that problem you are so right and what's more, the Paris Agreement, when it was made, said that offsets should be for the last resort. But here, these gas companies, at source, it's where their scope one emissions are, have got very large, uh, many millions of tonnes of emissions that they're creating. And here they are buying bits of land which is going to offset a minuscule part of those emissions. So it's a window dressing kind of activity in my view it's not a, if you're going to have something substantive for the gas companies get them to stop making the, the giving distributing their profits and, re, and surpluses to their shareholders put those surpluses into the technologies they need to get to deal with those emissions they have at source and i know from one i discussed the carbon capture and storage is a big issue and that's where they should be doing putting money into that research Rather than waiting for the government to come to the party, they're big enough and their shareholders uh, are, are, are big enough to allow the companies to do that. The gas companies, their, their business model is now flawed, Rusty. Most of their, most of their emissions are actually scope three emissions, which is you and I burning gas in our homes. Now, if they're mining the gas and that's where they've got their scope one, and two, they've got very small scope too, and then sell it to us in a home, how are they going to stop that? Only by cutting the gas out. And I'm afraid they're going to have to deal with that much more proactively and seriously than they're doing. They're currently, I think, taking global warming as a bit of a, as, 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 as half serious rather than with the intensity that they should be taking it. Yeah. Well, I think the government's safeguard mechanism is not bad because what it's forcing big companies, the, the, the companies producing 100, I think it's uh, 100,000 uh, tonnes of CO2 a year, anything bigger than that, the government is putting a level of what the emissions are now and they've got to reduce those emissions by, I think it is, 4.3 or 4.5% per year for the next 10 years. And that really will focus some minds. I think it's a pretty good mechanism. What's more, they are controlling the way offsets are used. They, ha they haven't said how, but they are controlling the way offsets are used. So the safeguard mechanism, I think, is a good measure that Bowen's introduced. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies.
said hello and then it was over before it began Watch us fall, watch us roll Stumbling in and out of love, covered in red Tied in grey, purple blue skies in disguise Stumbling in and out of love I've been falling before I was dirt in Caught up in the headlights by eight in smoke and mirrors, painted glitter, shiny little I've fallen for the worst of it, I've fallen for the worst of it, I've fallen for the worst of it. Buying and selling, only trending fast moments, thinking it's for video which was produced for this song is a love letter to the planet, writes Becca Amani, who filmed the visuals in Mount Tambourine in Queensland where she lives, around her family's farm and in the national parks 
and at the local hangout spots. I really wanted to express my love for nature and showcase the beauty around me. Narrative-wise, I really wanted to offer that we see the planet we care and that we want to do better. Becca's song is titled Smoke and Mirrors, and it's one of the 22 songs that are waiting for your vote so that we can find a winner of this year's Environmental Music Prize. The idea is you go and watch the music videos on YouTube, there's 22 of them, then you choose three that resonate best with you, and then you submit your vote, and you do that on the website environmentalmusicprize.com. The winner will receive a prize of $20,000. That's all we could fit in the hour. Um, see you all, or see as many as possible, tomorrow at 5 o'clock at the Geelong Library. Free access for students and people under 18. Otherwise, it's a $5 admission fee to hear a lawyer who's got a great idea. My idea was the duty of directors should be changed. Remember, corporations are formed by governments. Governments allow them to be formed. So the idea behind the code or the code for corporate citizenship is that we should change the duty of directors, not just in Australia, but in New Zealand and every one of the 50 new US states and all the 10 Canadian provinces, all the 27 members of the European Union, everywhere. But, and that sounds like a big task. But it's a much smaller task than each one of those states figuring out how much greenhouse gas emissions they're willing to live with. And the way I say the law should be changed is to add 11 words. And those 11 words are, but not at the expense of severe damage to the environment. That's, that's a big change because that strikes at the cause of the disease, not just the symptoms. And it's something that I think most people agree with. Why should government be setting up large institutions that have the right, unless government can make them stop, to cause severe damage to the environment or some other element of the public interest? So that's where the idea comes from. It is an obvious solution if you're a corporate lawyer. But the problem is most corporate lawyers represent big corporations, as I did, and they're not talking about it. His name is Robert Hinckley. There's been some writings about him in the papers, the local papers, last week. Uh, and, uh, and I think we should be a little bit excited about that this is a global launch of something that could potentially really change the world and be the difference. Yeah, be the difference. And let's hope it does. I know the world's gone mad, it's true. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, 
then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. There's no better adventure out there than working together to save the planet.